By now, your Bibles should fall naturally open to 1 John. So let's do that one more time, and then we'll change it up. On July the 5th, 2008, I received word that one of my newer friends had died the previous day on July the 4th. It was a fitting day for Charles to die because... Charles was, um, um, I don't know if I would call him a hero of World War II, but he certainly was uh, one of the men who saw a lot of death during World War II. Charles Powell uh, became a friend of mine as I officiated at one of his friend's funerals. Charles walked up to me later and said that he had served with that gentleman that we buried that day and wanted to know if I would do his funeral. And I told him I had plans that afternoon, but if he was planning on dying soon, I'd be happy to work it in. That started a, um, a friendship. It really didn't start off as a friendship. It just started off as an acquaintance. And um, Charles had a wife who was suffering from Alzheimer's and um, so I began to go over to his house and kind of minister with her and talk with him and that opened the door for some other ministry things. And in the process of that, I got to know my friend Charles, who had been a colonel uh, in the army during World War II. And he told me a little bit, he was like most veterans who had been in combat, didn't want to tell me a whole lot, but told me a little bit about some of the most horrific times at the Battle of the Bulge. And some of the concerns that he had were that he was responsible for sending men to certain death. And yet that was his duty. So when he died on July the 4th, 2008, I thought it was a fitting thing that he would die on Independence Day. One of the things that uh, Charles had me do during the time that I knew him, involved paying respects to his father-in-law. During the time that I was working with him, uh, I had to go to Washington, D.C. for um, uh, some business tied to the education process that I was in. And I said, I'm I'm going to Washington, D.C., and as a retired uh, officer in the Army, is there anything that you would want me to do? And he said, "I, I want you to do something that I cannot do. I said, what's that? He said, I want you to go find my father-in-law's grave because he died in World War I and I want to pay respects to him. And if you'll do that for me, then I would appreciate it. And so Teresa and I went to D.C. and planned a whole day to go do just some of the sightseeing stuff aside from the work that I had to do while I was there. And Uh, We had to go through the process of finding. All I had was a guy's name and that he had fought in World War I. uh, So I had to go through the process of finding where his grave was through the administrative channels there. And uh, Teresa and I walked out, and as it turns out, it was in part of Arlington National Cemetery that's the old part. And walking to find this guy's grave, and it took us a good 45 minutes just walking around looking for it. I passed grave markers of men who died in the Civil War and 
uh, some of the other wars that we've fought as a country. And uh, all of those things pushed me at the time. I, I'd never quite come to grips with the significance of days like Memorial Day as we are in the season to celebrate, which is really the wrong term there. And it began to push my thinking some about us as a people, as a nation. To stand at Arlington National Cemetery and, of course, the war on terror was in full bloom at that point. And while we were there, we saw one of those caissons go by with the honor guard as they were burying another fallen soldier. And it pushed my thinking. And I'd love to push your thinking a little bit this morning if I could. Recently, I started reading um, a book called 1861, The Civil War. And in this book, the author, who is a professor, talks about taking his students on a research uh, outing. And they found themselves in an old home on the eastern shores uh, somewhere in Maryland and began to dig through uh, some old letters and stuff that were there. And he said, it was a treasure trove for a historian, 300 years worth of correspondence from this family that had been part of the Union since before it was even the Union. And he said he came across this stack of letters that were tied with a pale yellow ribbon. And clearly, he said, it had not been disturbed for over 100 years. And so as the historian in him took over, he untied that and he began to read these letters. And it was from a colonel. And it was dated 1860. And this colonel was writing to his family members. This colonel who had gone through West Point was stationed in far West Indian territory. And all of the rumblings of slavery and the coming division in our United States that would be called the Civil War was in its infancy there. And he said, as a historian, I began to get enamored with the reality of what it takes uh, to get to war. What does it take for an individual to say, I so believe in the cause that I'm willing to die for it. Now normally when we study wars, we study battles and generals and heroes. But no war occurs but that there is somebody or some group of somebody somewhere who sit back and because of the reality of the situation make a decision that says, I will go for this cause even if it costs me my life, I will go for this cause. And so I go back to my friend Charles and many others. Several times I've officiated services for retired servicemen buried in national cemeteries around the country. What, what moves a guy to be willing or a woman to be willing to give their life for the cause? Let me turn that because I really do want to get us to think a little bit outside of the normal bounds this morning. I, I read with growing disgust 
the cries of Christian people about the current state of our union. Now, the reason I'm disgusted with that is because I hear a lot of whining going on from Christian people who don't seem to be willing to run for office to do something to change it. So if you happen to be a whiner about the state of affairs in America today, then stop whining, run for office, and change it. But you see, that's part of what we whine about. Because it sounds like we believe that we've reached the point that it can't be changed anymore. But I want to think about that. I want us to think about that. Because, I'll say it this way, if those men and women who gave their lives on a battlefield for the American cause had known that our country would reach the point that it has reached today, do you think that they still would have been willing to give their lives for that? I think that it may be time to stop crying about it and to do something about it. Let's say it this way. Would you die for the cause, the American cause? Well, since I'm not running for president, I'm going to turn the question to a spiritual focus today. I, I just gave you enough food for thought to occupy your thinking tomorrow for Memorial Day Let's turn the question to a spiritual focus. What in your life is so important to you that it's worth dying for? This is our final sermon in the Connected series that we've been looking through and seeing what John has to say in this letter that we call 1 John. And in this, what we found is that John underscores and he continues to push for us the necessity to be connected, first of all, with God, that vertical relationship that we all uh, have available to us. But that's not enough. We cannot go and just say, okay, so I'm good with God, therefore I can treat people the way I want. So John has said you can't do that. It's connected on the horizontal level with people also. And that's been the whole message that John has given us, that a healthy Christian life is connected with God and with other people in healthy ways. And as we come to these last words, and now we get to the last word, uh, we're in the last verse of the last chapter of 1 John, and in this, John gives one parting exhortation, a parting shot, if you will, to the church that he is writing or the churches that he's writing to. He says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I have to say that almost seems like it doesn't fit. If you've been reading through this with me and studying your way through 1 John, you'll recognize that this is one of those statements that uh, surfaces here. Every good writer knows that you don't introduce a whole new ideal in the last sentence of your paper. And yet, that's what he does here. It's as if, well, it seems like that's what he does here. It's as if he's about to sign off on it all and he goes, oh, wait, there was this other thing I wanted to say and he throws it on there. So is this an example of a fisherman who tries to write? Or is there more to it than that? I think we should give John some credit here. 
Let's look at the word as we kind of deconstruct and unpack this verse. Let's look at a couple of words uh, and we'll be done. Here's the deal. Little children, keep yourselves from, now the word here is idols. Does anybody have a translation that says anything different? All right? So, and that's good because the word in Greek is actually idols. It's a word that's in Greek that we just pull straight into English and change the way it's spelled, but it sounds exactly the same. Now, when we say idols, many of us tend to think about, uh, okay, now I'm going to use a King James word for you. It's actually two words, but the first one is the King James word. Graven images. What does the word graven mean? How many of you used that in a sentence this week? Unless you're, well, it's okay, so that's just not a word that we'd normally use, right? Um, but we know the term. It's a church term for us, graven images. If we go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, uh, we'll get a good answer to that from the ESV because they don't use the word graven. They use the word carved because in that second of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not make yourself a carved image. And that is the way we often think of the term idols. And some of that's because we are conditioned to that, maybe from just stuff that we've grown up with or things that we've seen on TV. We get Sometimes in our Baptist circles, we get a little bit freaked out about the idea of statues in church uh, or things like that. Because we know that commandment. Don't make yourself any graven images, any carved images. Keep yourself from idols. You know, I've told you before, so I'll just mention it and move on. One of the biggest fights that I saw between two sets of people in church occurred in a church down in deep south Texas that is in Catholic country. That's just the best way to say it, all right? No judgment, no nothing attached to that. It's just mostly Catholic in that area. And here's this little Baptist church that's planted in the middle of Catholic country. And one of the people that was saved out of that culture there, brought into the Catholic, I mean, into the Baptist church, out of the Catholic background, found her way onto the decorating committee. What danger lurks for a... And so she asks the pastor, would it be all right if we tackle my committee, the decorating committee, if we tackle the church parlor because it looks terrible? It was that beautiful 1970s gold felt wallpaper. It's just bad. And this lady had enough taste. She said, could I deal with that and... The pastor, a young guy who knew no better, said, sure. So she goes in and she takes one wall of that entire room. Oh, by the way, it's also the room where the little old ladies have Sunday school. Whatever that means. And so she and her committee take a wall, the focal wall, and put probably 40 crosses of different kinds on that wall. Now, don't get upset because I've been in some of your homes that have the same thing. But you know, all of a sudden, some of our dear, sweet Baptist saints, angels, fallen angels, but (laughs) 
They got totally warped because that's bringing idols into the church. I, I asked them, you do know, don't you? Oh, I guess I just let it out. Uh, as a young pastor, I asked those dear, sweet, fallen angels, you do realize, don't you, that Jesus was crucified on a cross, right? You do realize that churches, oh, I don't know, ours, has a cross that's focal in the worship center. This is small compared to the cross that was focal in the worship center of that church. But somehow in their minds, those dear saints had equated a bunch of crosses on the wall with idolatry, with graven images. Our church history is littered with controversies over icons. And long before an icon was a picture on your computer screen, uh, it was an element of worship in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So John seems to add fuel to that fire. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. But that's not the word that he uses. It's not the graven image thing that we use. It's not the statues Uh, word that he uses. He could have used that if he wanted to. As a matter of fact, if he was really wanting to communicate what we take from that, he would have used the word that those Christians, many of whom either then or eventually would be at Ephesus, you know, John's last days were lived out in and around Ephesus. Uh, And when I was able to go to Turkey and went to visit Ephesus, there's a little place just outside of the ruins of Ephesus that is the church where John served. And just up the hill, probably, I don't know, maybe two good hard golf shots with a driver and a three wood, from where John's church was, there was in ancient Ephesus a temple to Caesar. And in key places throughout the Roman Empire, they would build these temples to Caesar so that it would be one of those places where the people would remember that Caesar and Rome was actually their authority, but they also were forced to practice emperor worship and all of that. And it would have been very easy for John writing to these Christians to say, just go look up the hill and understand why I'm telling you don't make any graven images. But that's not the word and that's not his point. It sounds like it for us in English, but he has a deeper thing in mind for us. An idol as he uses it here. Now here's where this comes home for us. As he uses the term, an idol is anything or anybody that takes the place of God in your life. So let's let that settle in for a minute. Let's give you a chance to personalize that word and that definition. Anything that takes the place of God in your life. Let's take it a little more generally. If we were to have a discussion, just a few of us sitting around a table, and I ask, okay, so what are things or uh, people or combination of those that take the place of God in the lives of people today, just general people? We would say things like, well, materialism, you know, the stuff of life, that takes the place, occupies the place of God in their lives, or maybe it's their job, 
or maybe it's their hobbies, or maybe it's their family. But I think I'd like for us to be a little more introspective than those good general applications today. Let me turn the question around. Instead of what occupies the place of God in your life, what is worth killing for, for you? And I'm looking across here, and with a few possible exceptions, most of you don't look like killers. I recently read the book uh, after I saw the movie, um, American Sniper, the story of uh, Chris Kyle. And um, I I, I was taken by that. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's pretty violent at times. Imagine that. It's a war movie. Um, but in reading the book, there are some things that um, kind of I, I missed in the movie. And Chris Kyle talks about the mental stuff that he had to go through to be able to do his job. Now, he is the most... Um, the right way to say that prolific sniper in American history Uh, and talks at length in his book about those process those kills as a sniper And, and I was intrigued as he would work his way through the justification in his mind that he had to come to to do that and he had to come to that It is not the natural thing for us to go out and just kill somebody else. And he had that developed where he could do that and be really good at what he did there. So let me take that picture and pull it into church and into church life. What kind of killing happens in the average church? Most of the time, we're not going to find somebody laying dead on the carpet after worship service. Maybe the preacher after a sermon like this, but beyond that, for the most part, we don't. But I would submit to you that there's not a church around that every Sunday, any given Sunday, somebody gets killed. It's character assassination. It's gossip behind the lines. It's any number of things. But somehow, in church life, we seem to have said it's okay for us to kill each other as long as we have good justification for it. So what is it in your life or in the life of Christians as you know them that makes it okay? What is worth killing for? Now, the whole message is really about what's worth dying for, but I want us to own this problem. Because John comes to the end of it after he said all this other stuff, and I think what he does is not introduce some new idea here at the end. I think what John does here at the end is he makes a statement that ties everything up in what he said. You want to really make sure that you're connected vertically with God? Then don't let anything take God's place. You want to make sure that you're connected on a horizontal level with God's people and other people? Make sure that nothing takes God's place. Can you imagine God walking into a church full of his children and killing one of them? 
So how do we justify killing one another? And I think the answer, I've been kind of chewing on this all week long. Here's my answer to that. The way we justify killing each other comes down to self-preservation. I promise you, you break into my house and my wife is threatened, I'm going to do my best to kill you. Okay? And I'm going to be pretty good at it. I'm hoping. Now, you turn that around. You try to attack her at church. Well, not that you would attack her. You, you, you get what I'm saying? It, it, when we put it in a context that says, okay, you break in and you come after my family, then I'm coming after you. And that's what I see happening among church people. And I'm not talking about us necessarily, although certainly we have application in this. I'm just talking about the church at large in our day. The way that we justify the ungodly treatment of one another is that we call it self-preservation. Well, they said this about me or they did that about me or they're trying to take away the stuff that I like or they're doing stuff that I don't like. That reveals our idolatry because most of us fall victim to the ultimate idolatry, and that is that we worship self. It's about me. And so here's how that plays out. That means that I watch TV programs and news programs that agree with my point of reference. My dad used to say it's only my opinion, but I'm fond of it. That becomes the battle cry for churches all over the place. This is how we handle ourselves. So John says, keep yourselves from idols. And there's a word picture that I want us to get. He says, keep yourselves. That's how our English translation says it here. Other ones will say, guard. When we were at Arlington National Cemetery, Teresa and I went over, because I'd heard about it all my life and I wanted to see it with my own four eyes, and that is to go to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and watch those sentries as they march back and forth, keeping guard, keeping watch over that tomb. We got the spill on how, you know, was it 21 steps, I think it is, and you know, all, all of those kind of things. We got the whole explanation, but to go in the reverence of that moment and watch that guard who is one of an elite company who day in, day out, no matter what the conditions are, stand guard over that tomb. That's the picture of this word. John says, stand guard to keep yourself from idols. Be vigilant in your heart. Make sure that nothing creeps in and takes the place of God in your life. It's the picture of the Old West stagecoach. You remember the pictures that we used to get of that? These guys up there driving the stagecoach, but there's usually some guy sitting next to him, and what's he doing? He's riding shotgun, right? And the basic picture of that is, if you're going to come after whatever we have uh, that we're carrying, then you're going to have to get past the shotgun. 
The picture for us is, John says, if I can take his and turn it around, is when we come to this idea of keeping ourselves with God where we're supposed to be and abiding in him, which is the way John has said it numerous times here, then we have to ride shotgun on ourselves. It's a reflexive verb here. It means I'm not looking to you to ride shotgun for me. I have to do this for myself. Keep yourselves from idols. For those of you who are parents or grandparents who have grandkids who live close enough for you to be involved, this is a picture for us of the parenting process. We all know that as parents with kids, uh, for a while, we have to ride shotgun for them. Those sweet little angels can't make good decisions, it seems. And so the parenting process is to pull them close and help train them how to make decisions. And that means for a while, you have to make decisions for them. Uh, Once they get old enough that they feel like they don't need you to do that anymore, somewhere between one and a half and two years, then you have to start getting a little more uh, intentional with that. But somewhere in the process, at the end of the process, the goal is for you to have trained your children how to keep themselves from idols. And if you wait until they're 12 years old to start doing that, you waited too late. Not that God can't overcome it, it's just you missed your best window of opportunity. Same is true for us in church. We we can't just deal with problems when problems show up and expect everybody to know how to do it the way God wants it done. It has to become part of the fabric of how we do church. And that's what John has been saying throughout this entire letter. Be connected. But the great disconnector is idolatry. When I start thinking my opinion matters more than somebody else's, then I'm guilty of idolatry. When I'm falling into that deal of verbally chewing somebody up, even though they're not even near that area to be able to talk through it and defend themselves, then I'm guilty of idolatry. When I push God to the side and say, no time for you, that's idolatry. So how does all this fit the question that I started with about is it worth dying for? Here's a good statement I want you to take with you. That which occupies supreme place in your life must be of sufficient eternal value that it is worth dying for. That which occupies the supreme place in your life better have enough eternal value to it to make it worth dying for. Because here's the deal about idolatry. Idolatry takes you to certain death. You know the best example of that? 
is over in the book of Exodus. Moses has been up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and the law and all of that kind of stuff. Starts over in chapter 20, I think, thereabouts. But by the time we get to, I think it's chapter 32, Moses now has been sent down by God. The whole discussion there is interesting because God says to Moses, Moses, you better get back down to the camp because your people... No pastor likes it when God says, your people. Your people are worshiping a golden calf. You go read through that and you will find that over 3,000 people died that day because of idolatry. John says to you and he says to me and therefore he says to us, make sure that what you build your life around as a person, as an individual, and as a church has sufficient eternal value to be worth dying for. Keep yourselves from idols. And so as you leave today, let's just bow your heads if you will. As you leave today, a couple of questions for you. The, The takeaway from this What occupies the place of God in your life? And I'm not really talking about, you know, the quick trigger answer. I'm I'm talking about that part of you that if you could get really alone and really honest, you would go, you know what, This, this is most important to me. The follow up question to that is if that is anything other than God, what will you do today? to get it right. And if you're like most of us and the thing or the person that occupies that place of God in your life is you, are you willing to die today so that you could have life? And Lord, we ask you to take this and complete the message for us. Help us and if necessary, force us to be really honest and to take the appropriate steps. We pray that you would help us to be a church that is open to and conducive to life. That this would be a place where people could come and recognize uh, that we're all growing and that nobody has arrived. And even the most professional among us are still very immature when it comes to this thing called Christian living. Help us to get out from under the religious rhetoric of our day and be really honest with you and keep us from idols is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.